to Philippians in chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, I want to read verses 27 through 30. Philippians and chapter 1. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father, I pray as we come to your word that you would stand for us so that we would hear this word, not only uh, hear it and understand it, comprehend it, and Father, that this word would actually apprehend, uh, take a hold of us. And Father, that it would transform us, renew us, grant to us the grace to walk worthy of the gospel, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is our second go-round on this particular passage. It won't be our last, but it will be our second, you remember, uh, from last Sunday, that Paul is making a shift here. He has been talking about himself and his own life as a believer in Christ and his relationship with them, but primarily about his own life, that he is filled with joy, that he defends the gospel, that he lives to advance it, that the only thing that matters to him is the gospel, that he desires for Christ to be exalted in his life, for him to live is Christ, to die is gain. He lives on, however, for their joy and progress in the gospel. Now we come to a point where he begins to focus upon them, upon their lives, to think about them and to instruct them. But there is this point of continuity. And that point of continuity is that what was the core, and what was at the core of Paul's life, is to be at the core of their life as well. That is to say, that he's going to go on now and tell them how it is that the gospel is to be the very core of their life, the very foundation of their being, that their self-identity as his is to be one who believes the gospel, who's been transformed by the gospel. And so he goes on to tell them that their citizenship is to be worthy of the gospel. That is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's saying the gospel has great worth. And thus, you'll notice, he says only, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is to say, no matter what happens, whether I come to you or whether I don't, whether I live or whether I die, whether you live or whether you die, whether you marry this person or that, whether you take this job or that, whether you're majoring in this subject or that, whether there's a war or whether there isn't, whether you have a lot of money or a little, whether you have children or whether you don't, whatever happens in the course of your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he says, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He's saying this is what it means to live worthy of the gospel, live together. Now, he mentions this fact that there are opponents. And so he goes on to say this. 
This, that is all that together living worthy of the gospel, is a sign, a clear sign to them, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the conflict, in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so he's saying there is suffering in the midst of and because of these ones who oppose you. Now, Jesus, obviously, was clear about these opponents. He said that because they have hated me, they will hate you. In fact, there's an interesting juxtaposition of verses, if we could put them together, that I didn't think about until yesterday. Uh, For instance, in Matthew, in chapter 24, Jesus says this in verse 9. He's speaking of this suffering, this persecution. And he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Now when you hear that little phrase, all nations, if you've been around the church a while, around the Bible for a while, what do you think of? I don't think you necessarily think of this passage where Jesus says you're going to be hated by all nations. It's likely that you're thinking of a passage that comes in a few pages in Matthew 28. Listen to this. Matthew 28, verse 18. We read, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, if this hadn't been after the resurrection, I had the funny feeling that Peter would have raised his hand and said, Excuse me, didn't you say all nations would hate us? Now you're telling us that we're supposed to go into all nations? And Jesus would say, yes, you heard me correctly. They'll hate you, but I want you to go to them and make disciples of them. In fact, I think Jesus would say, Peter, I'm simply reiterating a point I made way back before that Matthew has for us in chapter 10, verse 16. Where Jesus is saying, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, when wolves think sheep, they think lunch. And Jesus is saying to them, Once you go to all nations, they will hate you. They're wolves. But I want you to go to them. You're going to be sheep. And I want you to convert some of these wolves into being sheep. There will be suffering. Paul knew that in the face of these opponents there would be suffering as well. Paul was called by God. You remember in Acts in chapter 9 and he was told about the things that he would have to suffer. In the course of Paul's life he speaks of the things which he did suffer for the sake of the gospel even going as far as to say I've suffered the loss of all things for the sake of knowing Christ. And so he would understand the sense of this suffering and even Paul says to them in verse 29 for it has been granted or graced or given by way of gift to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake so Paul is saying that suffering on behalf of these opponents is a gift to you from from God now The question that we asked last Sunday was this. The question we asked last Sunday was, why is it then that suffering seems to be necessarily associated with the advancement of the gospel? 
Because, you see, when Paul comes to them and says, I want you to live worthy of the gospel, I want your citizenship to be worthy of the gospel, he could mean a number of things, but in the context of this letter, he's meaning that to live worthy of the gospel is to advance it, to defend it, and to confirm it. That's the whole context here. The context of Paul's life as he explains it to them and his partnership with them is that in verse 5 of chapter 1 is that it's a partnership in the gospel. And this partnership in the gospel, for instance, in verse 7, means that they're all partakers of grace, both in the context of Paul's imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're facing opponents. Paul faced opponents. Paul was imprisoned because of these opponents. Some of them are likely to be imprisoned because of their opponents as they defend and confirm the gospel. And Paul is saying, not to worry, in verse 12, because all of this has led to the advancement of the gospel. And in verse 18, it's not that big of a problem for Paul to be in prison because Christ is being proclaimed. In fact, living worthy of the gospel means that his whole life will be lived so that in verse 20, now as always, Christ will be exalted, will be honored, will be magnified by his life. He goes on to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as he lives on in the flesh, he's saying he's doing that for their progress and joy in the gospel. So he's saying, you want to live worthy of the gospel, it means to advance the gospel, to defend the gospel, to show the gospel to be true, even in the midst of these opponents, who will bring to you suffering. And we asked, why is it that suffering seems to be necessarily associated with the advancement of the gospel. Why can't there be another way? There wasn't another way in Paul's life. He suffered in the context of advancing the gospel. And so have others throughout history. You can read about the martyrs in the scripture. You can read about the martyrs of Christendom through historians. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's not about foxes dying. It's about Christians dying, written by Mr. Fox. Right? Christians have died throughout the centuries. Not only that, more Christians have died in this century than all the ones before. Could be that there are just that many more Christians and maybe the percentage hasn't changed. But the truth is that more Christians have died, according to the statistics that we read, in this past century than in all the centuries combined prior to it. And so Christians die for their faith opponents, and these opponents are strong, and they come against us. And Paul says to live worthy of the gospel, for your citizenship to be worthy of the gospel means that you must be willing to suffer the loss of all things, even your own life. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I believe there are some thousands of young men in Iraq today who are learning in a very real way what it means to be a citizen of the United States of America and to live worthy of freedom because their lives are at stake. And they're demonstrating politically, militarily, the worth of freedom. Their citizenship in the United States is being played out worthy 
even of their own lives. That's the cost. That's the value of freedom in that context. Paul writes to this group of people in Philippi, and he says, I want your citizenship that's in heaven to be lived worthy of the gospel. That is to say, it is so valuable that it is even worth everything. It's worth your own life. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the man who found that great treasure in the field. It was hidden in the field and he came upon it. What did he do? Well, because it was of such great value, he went and sold all that he had so he could buy that field because nothing was worth more than that treasure. That's the kingdom of heaven. He says, now I want your citizenship to be worthy of this gospel. How important is it? How valuable is it? It's worth everything. Even to stand strong, even in the face of opponents, even if it means suffering, even if it means the loss of all things, even if it means the loss of your very life. I want you to stand sheep among wolves. Go to all nations who hate you and make disciples. That's the call. That's what I want you to do. That's living worthy of the gospel. Now why? This is still a review, by the way. Today's sermon is only about 10 minutes long. The review is 20. But you've got to get this. This is what happens when I preach one long sermon over three weeks. You've got to go back to the basics all the time. The guts of it. Why suffering? Why is suffering associated with the advancement of the gospel? Well, certainly because it causes us as we suffer to understand the depths of the gospel more. But not only that. When others see a suffering people who are still standing for the gospel, they're awakened to see its great value. That great passage, we remembered it last Sunday, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, always be ready to make a defense of the hope that is in you. To whom was Peter writing? Peter was writing to a suffering church. Peter was writing to a church that was experiencing fiery trials. And he says, I'm not going to do anything about these fiery trials. I'm not going to tell you they're going to go away. But here's your command in the midst of that. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That is to say, only let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. That is to say, always, in the midst of this suffering, be prepared to make a defense of the hope that is within you. Because you see, it's amazing when people have hope in the midst of otherwise hopeless situations. When someone's life is going really, really, really well, and they have hope, you sort of write them off as just normal. Well, of course they're hopeful. They have a great job, they have a fine family, they have good health, they're young, all those kinds of things. Of course they're hopeful. But you show me a person who's lost his job, his health is failing. His wife has died. And he still has hope. Ah, listen to that person. You, you show me a person who's living in utter freedom and ease of life. And he says he has hope. You show me a man in prison. Simply because he loves Christ. And he still has joy. And he still has hope. I want to know about him. I want to listen to him. So you see, suffering brings an audience 
for it shows the worth of the gospel. You know the old saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is to say, when Christians bleed, when Christians suffer, when Christians die for the sake of Christ, that does not stop the spread of the gospel. In fact, historically, we've found the opposite to be true. The blood of the martyrs actually gives birth. It's the seed of the church. Increasing numbers come to know Christ in the midst of such persecution. So Paul says there's opposition. You'll suffer. I want you to live worthy of this gospel. Show its worth in the midst of that suffering. To stand firm, to strive together for the sake of the gospel. All right, that was last week. Now, questions. Why is it and how is it that we can stand before this opposition? How is it and why is it that we can live worthy of the gospel even though there's strong opposition and suffering is grace to us and not be afraid? Notice verse 28. And not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, you have to understand that Paul, when he wrote this, understood the strength of his opponents. He had been beaten by them. He had been imprisoned by them. He has been starved by them. He had been ridiculed by them. He had been run out of town by them. He had been arrested by them. He had been stoned by them. And so he knew the strength of the opposition. And not only that, probably more intimately than the rest of us, he understood the spiritual opponent that was behind all of that. He understood that his war, as he said in Ephesians 6, was not against flesh and blood, but was against powers and principalities. That is to say, there was a spiritual dimension to all that was happening to him in the physical. And he knew the evil of that spiritual dimension. And he knew the strength of that spiritual dimension. And no doubt would have agreed when Peter wrote that, that Satan is, uh, is, is a roaring lion looking to someone, looking for someone to devour. And I think Paul would have had the same view of Satan. And so he knew the spiritual dimension behind all of that. So it wasn't that Paul was saying, don't be afraid because they're not strong. Don't be afraid because they're not powerful. Don't be afraid because they can't really do anything to your body or your mind or your family or your social situation or your life. They can kill you. He knew that. But yet, he said, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened in anything, by them. Don't let anything they do to you or to anyone else cause you to be afraid. No, how can he say that? And still be a rational, reasonable, thinking human being. Well, this little word frightened is an interesting one. It's used only here in the New Testament. There are other words used for fear and frightened. But this is a particular interesting one because in, in, in the vernacular of the day, in Paul's day, this little word for frightened would be used of a horse that had gotten spooked. A horse that had gotten frightened. A horse that had been sort of meandering down the road and all of a sudden came across something that he saw that scared him. And if you've ever seen, either personally or in the movies, uh, a horse getting frightened, a horse getting spooked, they rear up and, and they become completely irrational, if, if we can describe rationality to horses, I suppose we can, become completely irrational and throw off, if there's anybody riding on them, at least in the movies, and they gallop on in tremendous fear. And at that moment in time, whatever it is that they saw, whatever it is that they heard, it spooked them in such a way to completely change their course of life. And Paul's saying, don't let that happen. 
Don't let anything that your opponents do you so frighten you, so startle you, so surprise you that it causes you to run from Christ. Don't let that ever happen. Don't be frightened like that. But again we would say, but Paul, they can cause us to be ostracized in our community. Paul, they can cause us to lose our jobs. Paul, they can cause us to, 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 to destroy relationships with families as we profess Christ and, and others turn against us in our families. Paul, they can cause me to, to, to not be able to marry this one whom I love but is now not a believer and there is not a believer and I am a believer now and I, I break it off and that's painful. Paul, don't you get it? Paul, don't you understand that they could torture and persecute? Paul would, I think, turn his back to you and show you the scars. Say, I know that. But don't be afraid. And still you'd say, how? And here's how. For instance, Deuteronomy and chapter 7. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy and chapter 17. No, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 17. I had all the numbers. I just had to get them in the right order. Uh, Right-hand page, left-hand column, mid. Here's God speaking to a group of rational people. Here's God speaking to a group of rational people who are about to go into a land and conquer it. And he says, if you say in your hearts, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Well, remember, who's with you? Notice verse 21. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. He said, listen, don't ever forget that you belong to me, God says, and that I am with you. Paul knew this. Paul knew that in every circumstance, in every situation, God was with him. In fact, he had this self-identity as a person to whom God was with. If you would say, Paul, who are you? I think one of his answers would simply be, I'm a person with whom God is. Proper English. Right? Or he would say, I'm a person in whom God dwells. God is with me wherever I go. I don't think he ever forgot that. I think he always walked around with that on his mind. And we must too. We must be a people who are always thinking that God is with us. In whatever circumstance, in whatever situation, in whatever moment of time, we should be thinking God is with us. Now you can say, but how can I think about that when I'm trying to do my job? I understand I'm not a multitasker either. This isn't a task. This is a state of being. This is a self-understanding. This is an awareness. And it doesn't necessarily mean an awareness where I feel all ooky spooky or I can tingle with the tips of my fingers. But it's always an awareness. It's always a self-consciousness that God is with me. Never forget that. My kids know the last thing they say is they go out the car door or go out the door of the house. I always say, God is with you. Don't forget, God is with me. God is with you. No matter what else happens, only 
want them to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel. I don't want them to be afraid of whatever comes in their way. And so, what must they think of to be a rational, thinking human being in order not to be afraid of stuff that's bigger than us? See, these nations that, 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 that uh, Israel was about to do, dispossess and depose of their property were bigger and stronger, and they knew it. You remember that when they scouted out the land, this very land, about which God is speaking to them, when they scouted out the land, they sent out 12 spies. Ten of them came back and said what? These people are huge. We'll never be able to do this. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said what? They are huge. They'll just, it'll be so cool to hear them fall. And they'll fall because God is with us and he's bigger than they are. He's stronger than they are. We must never stop thinking about God, thinking about the fact that he's with us and making the reasonable, rational calculation if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what Hezekiah did on one particular occasion. For instance, in Second Chronicles and chapter 32, Hezekiah is speaking to his people and he has just been threatened by the king of Assyria named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib was big and strong and mean. And Sennacherib's army was huge. And Sennacherib had written a letter to Hezekiah and the people saying, uh, uh, don't trust in your God. I can overcome him. I'm stronger than him. And thus you have no hope. You have no chance. Now Hezekiah then speaks this to his people. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 7. Be strong and courageous. This point, he simply sounds like Saddam Hussein speaking to his people. The odds are about the same. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. At this point, Hezekiah is being very realistic. He knows there's a horde, a large number of people with Sennacherib. And he looks around and he knows there's not a large number of people with him. But he says, still, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. How can he say that? He says, for there are more with us than with him. Now at this point, you have to question Hezekiah's ability to count. Because you see, there aren't more with him than with Sennacherib. The opposite is true. And it's an easy calculation. But then he goes on to say, with him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. He says, be rational. Be reasonable. Be thoughtful. Understand the situation. Don't live in denial. Don't think that they're not strong. Don't think that they don't exist. We're not Christian scientists. We believe evil exists. We believe it's real. We believe it's strong. We believe it's powerful. And then, Paul says, but uh, Moses, uh, Hezekiah says, don't be afraid. On what basis? On the basis of the fact that there's one more reality to put into your calculation, and that reality is God. Thus, John would write in 1 John chapter 4, he who is in us or with us is greater than he who is in the world. So we needn't, we needn't fear because God is with us. Jesus would put it like this, for instance, in Matthew again in chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is telling them, as we mentioned a few moments ago, 
that he is sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now he unpacks that a little bit by saying that those wolves consist of all kinds of people. Religious people who will take them into the synagogue and beat them. Family members, brothers, parents, children, who will turn against you. And so he says, it's vicious out there. But then he says, in verse 26, So, that is to say, this is a very logical conclusion, based on what I've just told you about the enemy. So, have no fear of them. You say, but, 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 but Jesus, they can take my life. They can imprison me. They can take my job. They can take my relationships. How can you say, have no fear of them? Well, he says, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. That is to say, this gospel will go out. And what they do will not be hidden. Verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This is Jesus' linchpin argument as to why they shouldn't be afraid. Don't be afraid, he says, because all they can do is kill you. Which is a temporary inconvenience. But it's not an eternal problem. Don't be afraid, he says, of those who can only kill the body. Really, your fear should be in the one who can, as he says, destroy both soul and body in hell. Saying, the worst they can do is kill you. Don't let that stop you. Don't let that frighten you. Because what they can't do is take your soul. And while they may kill you, he says, read on, verse 29. And are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That is to say, God's watching out for this. He's looking out for sparrows. Surely he'll look out for you. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them, uh, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. That is to say, if they're taking your life, understand God knows that, and he knows your value. And that's the very best thing at that moment in time. So don't be afraid as if God isn't there. Because he is. And then he goes on, Jesus does, so in verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. He says, listen, when you arrive in heaven, I'll speak well of you. I'll speak up for you. When you enter into the gates, I will say to my Father, he belongs, she belongs to us. So don't be afraid. They really can't get you. All they can do is kill you. But that's only temporal. There's no eternal loss. In fact, if for you to live as Christ and to die as gain, it won't phase you. Now you say, Paul, it's one thing for them to kill me, but, 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 but they could hurt me. And I don't mind being dead. I just don't like to think about the process of dying. And Paul, I don't mind being dead, but I don't like the process of long-term suffering, long-term pain, long-term being debilitated. I don't like that. I think again, Paul would say, I understand. I've spent years at a time in prison. I know what that's, that's like, long-term. So let me tell you about that. For instance... 
Second Corinthians. In chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul writes this, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says, I understand what you mean. I understand the physical affliction. I understand emotional despair. He said so much that we despaired of life itself. And we long for death. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, even at that point in time, there was great blessing because we found ourselves increasingly trusting God more, not less, trusting God more because all the underpinnings of life had been taken from us and so now we were trusting God even more. And you get a sense of crescendo here. You get a sense that Paul's excited about this. Verse 10, he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. He says, you learn to trust more. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul again speaking of the suffering, long-term suffering. He says, so we do not lose heart. And you say, Paul, how could you not lose heart in the midst of this? He says, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. He says, something happens in the midst of this. And again, I can't explain this to you. I can only affirm it if it's happened to you or prepare you if it's going to. With these words, I I can't explain it. But Paul says, here's what happens when you go through this suffering for the sake of Christ. He says, he'll renew you day by day. He'll sustain you day by day. Don't dread it. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than a sparrow. If he's going to grace you, if he's going to gift you with suffering, then he will also enable you through his renewal process day by day to be refreshed and sustained. Verse 17. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, he's calculating He's saying, I'm suffering now, but what's coming is so great that this suffering won't even compare. As we look not to the things that are seen by, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And finally this, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 12 he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That is, don't be spooked. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when this glory, when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, listen, trust me, that when you face this, when you go through this, You'll be blessed. You see, Christians need to look at suffering for the sake of Christ like a smart bird looks at a scarecrow. Now, unintelligent birds, if we may ascribe intelligence to them, unintelligent birds get spooked by scarecrows. Smart birds, been around the field a couple of times, smart birds look at a scarecrow and say, There's great blessing in that field. Because, you see, 
If there wasn't, they'd never have put up that scarecrow. They don't want me there. A Christian sees suffering coming, and he's not afraid. Why? Because it's a scarecrow. Painful, but not frightening. Why? Because a Christian knows that in the midst of the suffering comes probably one's most productive time of showing the worth, the value of the gospel. And that, you see, to a Christian, is great blessing. But you see, the key to all this is to really know and really believe that God is with you and that God is for you. You remember, in the Deuteronomy chapter 7 passage, Moses tells them not to be afraid of the great giants in the land and to enable rational people to be unafraid in the midst of huge giants and huge nations and great armies to get them to not be afraid rationally is to requires that he gives them a reason why they shouldn't be afraid and he says now think back think back of your time in Egypt Remember when God overcame this great Pharaoh. Nine warnings, final judgment, and you were freed. Think about that and understand that this God is with you. And not only with you, but hasn't he proven at that point in time that he's not only with you, but he's also for you. That he cares for you. And it's not so much what God does to you, but what God does for you. Even in the midst of facing great opponents. God comes to us now, this side of the cross, and says to Christians, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Doesn't that prove that I'm with you and for you? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body given for you. It's for you. See, you're hopeless and helpless in the midst of your sin. But this is my body and I'm giving it for you. So that you can be freed from the guilt of your sin. So that you can be received by my Father so that you can have eternal life. This is for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is given for them, his blood for them. I suppose the verse in the scripture that I live off of the most is Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He did this. Look to the cross. If he did that, isn't he for us? 
And won't he be with us? And if we're thinking, if we're thinking all the time, God is with us. Who can be against us? God is for us. Who can be against us? Of whom should we ever be afraid? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful kindness and grace. And I pray, that Father, even as we look upon this table that we think upon Jesus, and even as we come to this table that we meet with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this bread and this juice not to change it in any way, but to bring us in the very presence of Christ, that as thinking upon him, we would become convinced beyond any doubt that he is with us and for us. Though the mountains may tumble into the sea, though the waters roar and foam, we will not be spooked. We will be still. We will stand firm, together, not afraid, because God is with us. Please work this deeply into us that we might conduct our lives worthy of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who have hope only in him, that is to say, that you find yourself, you know yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, without hope except in his sovereign mercy. But you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, that is to say, as the Savior of sinners, not just in a general way, but in a specific way, that he is the one who's lived for you and died for you and now intercedes for you and lives for you and in you. That you needn't be afraid. For all those for whom that is true, I invite you to come to this table, these two sections down this aisle to my right, uh, left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it, and in your own mind, say this, God is with me, and God is for me. Please come.